everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. Well, good morning, everyone. Happy Sunday to you. Uh, I'm just aware at nine in the morning that for many people, it's already been a full day, and one of the great gifts of coming to a church whether you've been coming for years or whether you kind of eased your way in today and this is a newer experience for you, one of the great gifts is just an opportunity to engage God in a reflective way that maybe you don't do during the week, uh, that you just get a little moment. And uh, I'm just going to try something. I've actually never done this before. This may not work. So come back second service, see if we do it again. But we, we do have these light bulbs just up on the stage. And one of the practices I've been trying during the week is I'll light a candle just to remind me when I see light, just to remember that God is with me. Because honestly, I get wrapped up in my life and I forget that basic idea that God is with me. So I'm going to invite you just to pick one light and just focus on it. And as you do, I'm just going to prompt us with a couple of ways that you might engage God and and then we'll jump into our message and our text for the day. Uh, As you're focusing on a light... Uh, another thing I'm going to encourage you to do is just take deeper than normal breaths. Just deeper than normal, more intentional about your breathing. And as you do, just our, our first prompt, um, this is a common one for those who have been around for a while, this is familiar. Uh, for those who have, you who are newer, this is a prayer of exchange. What can I give God? What can I get from God? So as you're looking at a light, as you're breathing deeper than normal, is there something that you are grabbing hold of that you know God is trusting you to trust God with? Something that you're worried about, something you're trying to control. Maybe you're trying to worry your way to an outcome. And you know God is calling you to trust God to release it, let it go. Or it might be that you don't feel like you've got something in your grip, you feel like something has you in its grip. You feel squeezed. Just deeper than normal breaths, just, just a simple focus on the goodness of God. Let's give that to God now. And just while we're pausing and taking this moment, if there's something you really need from God, it's vulnerable to ask God for something, especially when you see yourself as somebody who helps others, you may not be as inclined to ask for help. It's vulnerable because God may not answer it. But God does like when we ask. What do you need? Just tell God now. God, you are good, you are with us all the time, even though most of the time we don't see it. Uh, We get wrapped up in ourselves. Also, not to be a critic, Lord, but you are invisible, and that makes it harder for us. And um, as you know, Lord, I've said a number of times, I find your still small voice to be overrated. I would prefer that you speak up so I could hear you clearly, because here we are, Lord, putting our whole life 
in an event that happened 2,000 years ago. Lord, we know it's true. It's changed everything for us. And yet we grapple with what you want us to do and what you are doing. We get easily caught up in the events and circumstances around us. So Lord, right now as we just pause, thank you that you are with us. Thank you that where two or three are gathered, you are there. Thank you, Lord, that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. We, we have been in a series for, I think it's seven or eight months now, going through the life of Jesus, uh, according to one of Jesus' uh, writers in the Bible named Matthew. Matthew was a follower of Jesus. He's in the book of Matthew. It's actually one of the great delights of reading Matthew's account of Jesus is you also run into Matthew himself. He's writing about himself. But we have been in this long series as a church just so we can follow along in the footsteps of Jesus, pay attention to what Matthew wants us to pay attention to. And we're now in a section where things are starting to to slow down. I don't know if you've noticed, but sometimes you read a, a gospel of Jesus and you're like, man, I wish there was a little more, like it's going so quickly. But what is happening is we're getting very close to the culmination of Jesus' life where he dies for us on the cross. And Matthew starts to slow down the narrative. It's getting a little agonizing. And today's narrative is a little agonizing, I'll be honest with you. I was actually teasing Zach a little bit this week when he assigned this passage for me to preach. I'm like, Zach, you've kind of given me Empire Strikes Back here. Like, there's no resolution. Everything's dark. Things get worse. That's kind of what we're dealing with in this passage today. But before we get into the passage, because there's five scenes in this passage today, and we are going to go through every scene quite quickly, but we are going to tackle the five scenes in this passage, a couple of things that's helpful to know is Matthew overall likes us to know that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan from long ago, that, that God willed from long ago that Jesus would come that he would do the things that he was doing, that he would fulfill predictions about him in the Bible. Those of you who are not followers of Christ, that is one of the things that you have to grapple with as you try to figure out, is God reliable? Is God somebody I should be following? One of the things you have to grapple with is how in the world, hundreds of years before Jesus came, did God's followers predict Jesus' life so accurately and so precisely? It's a little freaky, I'm not gonna, not gonna lie. When you go back and read the Old Testament, hundreds of years before Jesus, here are these prophets, different men and women of God saying, this is what Jesus is gonna look like and this is what he's gonna do. Matthew's quite obsessed with that all through his biography, never more so than the passage we're looking at today. On five different occasions, Jesus overtly says, I'm doing this so that the prophets would be fulfilled. Overtly, Jesus just comes right out. You'll hear it a couple of times in our narrative today. I am doing this thing or I'm not doing this thing so that the Old Testament would be fulfilled in me. But also covertly, Matthew, as he's telling this story, he's dropping little hints. This is God's will. This is God's will. So our story is quite bleak today. I'll just warn you right now. It involves Jesus' arrest, a false trial, torture, It involves a lot of dark stuff, and we don't get the benefit today of what we like, which is like a happy ending. This is not Brady Bunch today, for those of you who are Gen Xers, or, you know, Disney, for those of you millennials. I try to cover the full spectrum there. Uh, No, this story really ends dark. It ends dark. However, there is some, some light to be found. So, 
where our story left off last week, where, where uh, Zach left us off last week, Jesus has had his Passover feast with his disciples. He's now in the Garden of Gethsemane. And if you recall, those of you who joined us last week, or maybe you're just familiar with the story, Jesus is begging his friends to beg God. Hey, if you could just stay and pray with me, Jesus says, because Jesus knows what's coming. He knows the cross is coming. And so he's engaging the Father in a deeper way. He's preparing himself. He's asking his friends to be there with him. They're letting him down. They're falling asleep. Jesus then wakes up, and now there's a mob coming at him. And Matthew says the mob is armed with swords and clubs. This is a mob that means business. They are there to arrest Jesus. This is a citizen's arrest. They're there to drag Jesus and take him and put him on trial. For what? For being the Prince of Peace? For being a nice guy? For healing sick people? No. For irritating the status quo. For annoying religious people. What was the charge? He likes sinners. That will not do. He likes sinners. The other charge, he claims that he's the king of the Jews. So this is the charge. So here comes this mob. The mob is led by one of Jesus' own followers. Have you ever been betrayed by a friend? Judas, one of Jesus' 12, just the night before, having Passover, this intimate meal, Judas sneaks away. He's taken a bribe. The religious leaders have paid him 30 pieces of silver to hand Jesus over to the authorities. So Judas is leading the mob. And Judas before, this is all off stage, scene number one, all happening off stage. Judas says, hey, the guy that I kiss, that's the one you're arresting. Like they didn't know. Everybody knew who Jesus was. This was not a great secret. And so Judas walks into the garden. The disciples who have been asleep are kind of waking themselves up. And Judas kisses Jesus on the cheek. And he says, hi, friend. Jesus is like, well, I don't know what you mean by friend. I'm paraphrasing. And now the mob. And the mob are angry, they're violent, they're armed, swords and clubs. And so Matthew doesn't say who it is, but one of the disciples takes a sword. Jesus is like, where did you get a sword from? Have you not been listening? Do you need the Sermon on the Mount again? Once again, I'm paraphrasing. But Jesus is like, look, three years and you brought a sword. There are Christians today that use the fact that, that Peter brought a sword as justification that Christians should be able to use violence. Jesus, right here, our story picks up in verse 52. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. This disciple not only takes his sword out of the sheath, but he starts swinging it. Uh, Matthew doesn't so much record the details of it, but the other uh, gospel writers do. It's Peter. Of course it's Peter. It's always Peter. Peter's so impetuous. Uh, I can relate to Peter. He does before he thinks. His thinking catches up to his actions. That's Peter. I, I feel a bit the same way. I've done that a number of times myself. And so Peter starts swinging. Now what's interesting, what we don't mention too much, is Peter was ready to give his life for Jesus right there. Why don't we talk about that? An armed, angry mob with swords and clubs, massively outnumbered. There's only like 11 disciples in Jesus, hundreds of people in this mob. Peter takes out his sword and we're all like, oh, Peter, oh, come on now, not bad. Peter's like, oh, is it dying time? It's dying time. I'm ready, Lord. I told you I'd be ready. Remember, those of you who know this story, remember when Peter said, I will never leave you. This is Peter trying to keep his word right here. He's not just like slashing and having fun. There was no opportunity in that moment to put the sword back and say, sorry, everybody, just kidding. 
No, this is, it's rumble time, right? It's time for a fight and we're all going down. I'm dying with my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ right here. Not bad, but he, he, he misses, he's in the excitement, he just lops the guy's ear. And again, Matthew doesn't record it. It's another gospel writer where Jesus has a quick impromptu healing. Uh, look, I'm sorry for my disciple Peter. He's still clearly in training. I'll, I'll keep working on him. All right, scene number one, put your sword back in its place, Jesus said, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. And here it is, here's the first one. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? If I were to summarize, Jesus is saying, this is God's will. This is God's will. In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching you didn't arrest me. Here's the second time again. But this has all taken place, Jesus said, that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Or if I had to summarize, Jesus is saying this is God's will. What's going on right now is God's will. This leads to scene number two where the mob take Jesus out of the garden and they drag him to Caiaphas's palace. Now, one of the problems when you read a 2,000-year-old document is there's names and phrases that we don't use nowadays and it can get confusing. And so, you know, unless does anyone here have a child named Caiaphas, for example? No, we don't use that name, not even on our cats. Okay, so I'll, I'll kind of, uh, I'll read a little here, but then I'll show us here what's going on. Jesus is now having a late-night trial in front of a Jewish leader. Verse 57, scene number two. Those who arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, Peter, of course, being the sword guy, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. Now, I'd just like to preempt before we get to scene number four, we're at scene two right now. For those of you who know the story, I don't mind spilling the beans. Scene three is Peter's denial. Scene four is P uh, Jesus in front of Pontius Pilate. Okay? By scene four, I mean scene five. Sorry, having trouble. Scene four is Judas. We're going to pass through that one quickly. I'll explain why later. So we're in scene two. Jesus is in front of a Jewish ruler, Caiaphas. In scene four, he's under a Roman ruler, Pilate. And when you're reading your Bible, this is very easy to get confused. Who's Jewish? Who's Roman? What's the difference? So just a couple of key words. I'll put it on the screen. Anytime you see the following phrases, Sanhedrin, high priest, Pharisee, Caiaphas, that's Jewish. That's Jewish. Anytime you see Pilate, governor, tribute, prefect, that's Roman. And I don't know how much this really matters, honestly. I don't think this knowledge is going to change your life, but it does help maybe detangle the scripture a bit because the reality of Jerusalem was it was Jewish ruled locally under Roman subjugation. The, the closest I could think of is kind of like a Native American reservation where they had their own sovereignty, but sometimes they still have to interact with the United States, and that metaphor falls over really quickly when you compare it to Judaism and the Roman Empire. But basically, Rome would come in and conquer a place, but sometimes would let that place kind of run its own affairs and then just step in when needed. 
And so you've got these Jewish religious leaders, Caiaphas being one of the most powerful, and so he has power. He can arrest somebody. He can put someone on trial. But, for example, Caiaphas could not issue the death sentence. That's a Roman job. So Caiaphas kind of had to set up a trial as a Jewish guy to then make the, the Roman guy do what Caiaphas wanted, kill Jesus. And then, of course, as you're reading your Bible, there's the guy who wants it both ways. That's Herod. Herod's not so much featured in this story. He's kind of in the background. There's no question the religious leaders only tolerated Rome because they had to. Uh, there's all kinds of history of attempted uprisings with the Jews trying to overthrow the Romans, Judas Maccabees in the Old Testament. Very uneasy relationship. But this story is a mashup of Rome and Jerusalem working together to execute Jesus Christ. Um, it's not really in the story, but I do think since we're heading toward November, this is a good time to remind us how remarkably indifferent Jesus was to politics. Like stunningly indifferent. He, he made fun of Herod once or twice. He, en he enjoyed annoying the religious leaders, but the Romans, he actually got along with remarkably well. He healed one of their daughters, for example. He looked at another, he's like, you've got great faith. Uh, Jesus very rarely was interested in politics. What Jesus was obsessed with was the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God uh, being lived out on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, I hope that's helpful as we crash into November. Uh, verse 59, Jesus on trial. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin, it's a Jewish word, were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they could not find any, though many witnesses came forward. I'm sorry. How bad do you have to be at your job that you can't even trump up lies properly? Did you see that? They were looking for false... How, how do you look for false... You don't look for false evidence. You just make crap up. And then you find two people and you say, hey, would you say lies? Oh, sure. Yeah, no problem. I'll do that. Okay, here's money. It's pretty easy, but they were not able to do it. A rather incompetent proceeding. I think out of the very little humor that there is in this passage, I think Matthew's mocking the religious leaders there. Many witnesses came forward, and Caiaphas was like, you got it wrong again. Off you go. Let's try again. Okay, next. Finally, two come forward, and they declared, this fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Now, what's funny about that is that's not false. Jesus really said that. That's true. So even in their best effort to trump up a false charge, they accidentally testify to the truth. This is some of the wonder of God. Oftentimes in God's will, people try their own thing and God is still orchestrating events for the outcome that God wills. And so here are two people saying, oh, I've got a false story for you. Jesus is the new temple. <laughs> You no longer have to go to this building and sacrifice that animal and, and please that stupid corrupt priest. All you have to do now, because Jesus is going to do away with that whole system in three days, Jesus is going to do away with it. And for the rest of all eternity, including now in 2022, you do not have to go to a building to connect with God because Jesus is now the temple. The temple is the place where earth and heaven meet. Jesus is the temple because earth and heaven meet in Christ. And so now, anytime you need anything, just go to Jesus. 
That's all you have to do. It's very simple. Tomorrow morning, when you get out of bed and your alarm clock goes off before your body wants to get up, you don't have to go to a temple. You can go to Jesus right there. When, you're, when your feet first touch the ground and you're wondering, can I really face the day? Or maybe even now, as you're sitting here and you're looking at the light and taking those breaths, there's an event or a person that you're anxious about this week. Jesus is the temple. He destroyed the old way of doing it. It only took him three days to destroy it, to put it to death. And you can now come to him. Verse 62, Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. That's funny. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You've said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and he said, He's spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He's worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and they struck him with their fists. And others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? What's not mentioned in Matthew is they had Jesus bound. He, he couldn't see. And so they were hitting him from behind and slapping him while his eyes were closed and asking him, look, if you're God, basically they're, they're mocking him. Just another quick tip. If any religious, religious leader that you're following, maybe you follow them on social media, maybe you listen to their sermons online, if they're primarily using mockery or their primary online identity is to trap others and prove them wrong, they're actually not representing God at all. I would encourage you as fast as you can to unfollow those people. Okay, scene three. Matthew takes the spotlight off of Caiaphas's palace, and he goes from indoors to outdoors, which is where Peter, who surely, if he lives anything like you and I do, is replaying the event in the garden and saying, oh, I can't believe it. Jeez, I mean, I would have thought. Have you ever done that? You do something and then later you just spend hours regretting it. I, I do wonder if this is partly why Peter was not well in what happened next is he's kind of still in the garden with his sword carrying some level of shame. Scene number three. We'll move through this one quickly. Now, Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. And then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. And after a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. And then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And then Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Scene number four, we're not going to read. You can read it on your own. It involves Judas and Judas's profound regret. He 
immediately is profoundly remorseful for what he did. He tries to return the payment to the religious leaders. They won't take it. He's inconsolable. And what is tragic to me is that somehow Judas, who had followed the king of forgiveness for three years, did not believe in that moment that his betrayal was redeemable. I think that's what's tragic. And so I just want to have a quick word on despair. Because Judas, if you read that story on your own, you will see Judas was in profound despair. He was inconsolable and no one could convince him of what was true in the moment. The problem with despair is when you're in it, it feels permanent and it feels all-encompassing. Despair makes you lose sight of reality. And so then Judas did what some do when they're enveloped in utter and complete despair. And I'm not naive to think that I could say something from this pulpit for later when you are in despair, because the problem is when you're in despair, you don't remember what people are saying. I I just want to say now, if you are in despair right now, or if you know somebody who just is so in despair right now that they cannot see a way out, or maybe you feel like you cannot see a way way out, then I, I simply pray that you would hear this. Your life is worth living. You are worth it. You have earned the right to be alive, and it's worth fighting for your life. And maybe you're in despair for a reason like Judas is, because you did something that you think is unforgivable. All I can tell you is there's nothing that's unforgivable in Jesus. Jesus can redeem all things. You know, Judas and Peter had quite a lot in common. They both betrayed their Lord and Savior. And yet Peter stuck around long enough to discover on the other side of that profound deep betrayal was phenomenal forgiveness and restoration and redemption. And so now our final scene, scene five, Caiaphas, the Jewish guy, has done enough to now convince the Roman people that they can kill Jesus for a reason. Even though Romans were brutal, they weren't in the habit of killing innocent people for no reason at all. As much as crucifixion in many ways was very cheap back then, that was still something that Rome took seriously. And so Caiaphas sent Jesus to the governor, the Roman governor, that's Pontius Pilate. Many of you have heard of him. And our story picks up in Matthew 27 verse 11. Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Well, you have said so, Jesus replied. That is a loaded question, because Herod is the king of the Jews, and Herod and Pilate were friends. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. And then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus gave no reply, not even to a single charge to the great amazement of the governor. You know, previously Jesus was overtly talking about that what he was doing was God's will. Now it's Matthew's turn, but Matthew's not being overt, he's being covert, he's dropping little hints. So when Jesus is silent in front of the authorities, Matthew is thinking a prediction that Isaiah made hundreds and hundreds of years ago where Isaiah said he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shearers. He was silent. Or 
Matthew's saying. What's happening right now is horrific. It's unjust. The Jews are are violating every Jewish law to trump up a false charge on Jesus. And Matthew's saying it's all God's will. It's all God's will. Now, it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. My beef is, could they not have found a different prisoner with a different first name? It just makes things confusing. A well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who's called the Messiah? for he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with this innocent man. I've suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders, these are Jewish, persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What, what should I do then with Jesus, who's called the Messiah, Pilate asked. And they all answered, crucify him. Why, what crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, He took water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd. I'm innocent of this man's blood, he said. It's your responsibility. And all the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. And then he released Barabbas to them and he had Jesus flogged and he handed him over to be crucified. That's where our text ends. It's a a pretty horrific story, a lot of horrific events, a completely rigged trial, mockery, torture. You have humans intentionally creating injustice for the God who created justice. You do have some reversals. You have Caiaphas, the person who doesn't follow God, telling the truth. You have Peter, the one who does follow God, lying. Five times Jesus predicts something or does something because he overtly says it's God's will. And almost that many times, Matthew, also the author, pointing out all of the things going on that is God's plan. So what I wanna do in the last three or four minutes is just have a quick word about God's plan. God's plan. I have found as a pastor, I mean, I've been a pastor a quarter century now. That's quite a long time. It doesn't feel like that long, but I've been 25 years as a pastor. And as I think about the kinds of questions that people ask a pastor, it could actually be, it's certainly in the top three questions, what is God's plan for my life? Or sometimes they will come to a pastor and they will say, here's what's going on. And they'll either say, is this God's will? Or they will say, this is God's will. And I'm sure if you're like me, most of us grapple for most of our life with trying to figure out what is God's plan. If I just knew God's plan, then I would do it, or I wouldn't do it, but at least it would be clean. 
But what happens is most of us grapple with our circumstances and we're trying to make sense of a lot of things we don't understand. So I would like to give us a couple of things that are 100% God's plan to start with. Number one, Matthew and Jesus have said all through this passage, it is God's plan for Jesus to suffer and die so that we might be free and loved. You can take that to the bank. Jesus died intentionally. He was not a victim of the Jewish corrupt leaders and the Roman Empire. He was not a victim. He intentionally gave his life so that you and I right now in 2022 can experience freedom as human beings. We can be set free from the things that bind us. And I think most profoundly so that we can intimately know the love of the creator of the universe. Uh, some of you are not followers of Jesus Christ and you believe there is a God. You look around, you see the mountains, especially in the fall. I mean, it's easier to believe in God in the fall, isn't it? And that first snow, easier to believe in God. It's magical. And so you're saying to yourself, God is all powerful. I believe there's a God that's all powerful. But what we are here to declare is God is all loving and God knows your name and God cares about you and what's going on in your life. And it is God's will that you would say yes to Jesus Christ, that you would say yes to that gift that he's given you, that's true. But sometimes what Christians do, and I'm sorry to say this, for those of you who aren't Christians, this is a habit that we have that I would like us to break as followers of Jesus. Sometimes what happens is we'll read a story like this, where overtly Jesus says, this is God's will, and Matthew says, this is God's will, and then we will be in a horrific situation or a loved one of ours is in a horrific situation. Your loved one just gets diagnosed with cancer. And you don't know what to say. And you don't know what to do. And because you are anxious and you're not sure, what the human being wants to do is make meaning out of things we don't understand. And sometimes, and I'm sorry to say, Christians tend to be more prone to this, I think, than other species of people. Sometimes we make a very simplistic statement about something we don't understand so that we can get in control of it. And so we say, well, that was God's will. Perhaps one of the most common questions I've been asked as a pastor is why did God allow this to happen to me? Or why did God cause this to happen to me? And more often than not, I'll say, well, how do you know God made it happen? Well, what? Like, God, there is a stream of theology that believes that God wills all things to happen. Those terrorists flew those planes into the World Trade Center, those innocent passengers, those innocent office workers. And there is a stream of theology that says that was God's will. Not here. We do not believe that God causes terrible things to happen to people. I would caution you, Discovery Church, to not be so quick to say to somebody, this is God's will. I have been with too many people when somebody has died and because you don't know what to say and because you're very anxious, you say, what's the church word for it? You say stupid things. You say, well, God needed another angel in heaven. That doesn't even make sense. Jesus himself in this passage said he could get 72,000 angels. Jesus, God needed one more. I have been with children where people say that to kids when their dad has died. What are you doing? What you're doing is you're anxious and you're trying to make meaning out of a situation you don't understand and it's hard to live by faith when you're hurting. And so instead you speak because then you can shrink it down 
and then you put an unintentional burden on that little child. Well, I guess God needed my dad. I guess that's what happened. I guess that's why. What kind of a monster God do you believe in? Which leads me to the final thing, and I'll have Aaron and Alex come up and prepare us. You can take this to the bank. God's plan is not to cause all things, but God can redeem and likes to redeem all things. I don't know why your loved one has cancer. I don't know why that terrible thing happened to you. As often as not, most of those individual and systemic situations can be more explained by human intent than God's intent. I don't necessarily know why those things happened. What I know and what I can take to the bank is God did not automatically cause it, but God is automatically in it. When something terrible happens, God is there, redeeming it. What is God's will is not necessarily to cause, but to redeem, to make all things new, to make you new, to make what happened to you renewed, to forgive, to open up more avenues and possibility for you to encounter the love and the redemption of God in powerful ways, no matter what you've done and no matter what's been done to you. Paul tells us this in Colossians, and I'm going to invite us to stand as we hear the word of the Lord before we prepare to worship, where Paul says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you are alienated from God and you are enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish, free from accusation. That's God's will. That's what God wants. And that's an invitation available to every one of us, whether you're a follower of Christ or not. You can say yes to God today. We'll be worshiping through song. We'll be worshiping by receiving the bread and the cup to remind us of Jesus' sacrifice. And at the end, after Aaron dismisses us, there'll be a couple of us down front. If there's an area of your life where you want to say yes to God, if there's an area of your life where you are feeling tremendous pain and confusion and you'd like prayer, if you would like to give your life to Jesus, I'll be down front. Any of our elders or pastors in the room, I'm going to ask you to come down front and join me. We would like to be with you and pray for you and pray with you. For now, let's declare the goodness of God in worship.